So we are walking through the book of Mark, okay? So take your Bibles and let's go ahead and open up to the book of Mark. And what's happening in Mark, very quickly, is uh, some quick background. Mark was written just about 20 to 30 years after Jesus had, uh, had ascended and got back uh, to sit at the right hand of the Father. And so the gospel is, is, is spreading like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire. And there is a group of believers in Rome who are being seriously persecuted because of their faith. It has gotten so bad that they're being blamed for stuff that they had nothing to do with just to be uh, 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 scapegoats for, for you know, Nero's fury. In fact, if you remember, if you've been here, like he would dress these Christians up in, in skins of animals so, and turn them loose and be eaten alive by wild animals, wild dogs. It was great persecution. They're hiding for their lives. They're hiding for their safety. And so Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the testimony of different apostles, including Peter, especially Peter, he writes this account of Jesus' ministry, of Jesus' life. And this is a fast-paced book. He does not give a lot of flowery language about a lot of details that we can find in other passages because I think that Mark realizes like the, the, the urgency of this message. Like we've got people who are, who are on the front lines of this thing of persecution, and we must get this message of who Jesus is to solidify their faith, to make sure they understand who Jesus is, what his authority was. And this is a huge theme of the book of Mark, is the, his authority. And we're going to see this over and over. We started in verse 1. We're going to see it again today. We started as baptism, that Jesus is the Son of God. We're not going to be able to walk away from Mark without realizing that. that uh, no, you can go back. Um, without realizing that Jesus is who he claims he is, okay? Then we've got the second theme going on, his mission. Not, not just that he is authority, not just that he is God, not just that he is deity, but he came for a mission to seek and to save the lost, to die for the sins of those whom God would draw unto himself, to die for your sin, my sin, every single thing I've ever done placed on Jesus and the wrath of God poured out on Christ on the cross. And there's this mission, Jesus talks about it, over and over, it's coming, it's going to happen. And so when this authority of Jesus and this mission of Jesus, they combine together at the thing of the cross, and we're left with the response. And do, do we buy into this? Or is this foolishness? Paul says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it's life to those who believe. And what is this? What is this response that we would give to Christ, his claim? And so we're walking through the book of Mark is divided into these four sections that we've seen here. The preparation time of Jesus, which we have uh, established uh, through the previous messages. Today we're starting into his ministry in Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel. Then he's going to go to Jerusalem. And then the last part of Mark is his time, what we call the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life. And so what we're going to focus in today is the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So take your Bibles, Mark chapter 1, we're starting in verse 14. And if you're new with us or you kind of haven't been here uh, in a while, if you remember, we kind of read a little bit and then we talk a little bit. We read a little bit, we talk a little bit, and then we walk out with hopefully one single big picture idea that we can write down, that we can put on our mirror, that we can recount over and over throughout the week in our community groups. We'll talk about it. We'll massage this truth deeper and deeper into our hearts, into our lives, so that we don't just rush through Scripture. We actually take time to think about it to think about what God is doing. So Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Now, the Bible says, now after John was arrested, 
Okay, let's just stop right there just for a second. Okay. I wasn't going to prepare any real notes on this to share with us. I was going to like zoom past this because there is so much depth in these next, the next verse that I was just going to zoom past this and like not really worry about it. But then as I prayed more and more and I thought more and more and I studied more and more about what is happening, like put this into context. Just a couple weeks ago, we talked about Mark, uh, uh, Mark <laughs> Richard uh, preached about how John was calling people to repent. And, and people were coming to this, this Jordan River and there was so many people in the Jordan River. He was dunking people left and right. There was all the towns were coming to the Jordan River. There's more people gathered around this Jordan River than there were even in the towns in which the people were living. It says all of the country of Judea came out to be baptized by John. I mean, we're talking a mass amount of folk where John is the center of this whole thing. Well, he's the mouthpiece, the center of mouthpiece. God's the center of it all. Uh, but John is the center of this. Then just two weeks ago, I stood up here and preached about how Jesus came and Jesus was baptized by John. And John himself, with his own eyes, he saw heaven rip open. Remember this from a couple weeks ago? Heaven rip open. The Spirit of God came down and descended into Jesus and the voice of God the Father from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son. You, I am well pleased in. And now John is, his reward for that is sitting in jail? Like he had the front row seat to see the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Like he was on the 50-yard line, 10 rows up, like front and center seeing this thing happen. And now he's been imprisoned for Jesus. Like, see, I've never been in prison for Jesus, so I just want to rush by that real quick because it doesn't connect with me. And maybe it doesn't connect with you either. But think about who does this connect with? Who is this written to? Remember those Christians in Rome who were running for their lives because of the fear of the government to come and take them by the throat and throw them into prison. But think about some of these uh, Christians who were, who were uh, huddled together under candlelight trying to, to read this letter, and they see this John who's done all these amazing things. Now he was thrown in prison. Man, these people reading this, this, these Christians in Rome, they could have had spouses themselves. They could have had children that have been captured by the government. They could have had themselves... Uh, uh, being hunted down and they narrowly escaped being captured by the Roman Empire. And this, these words have depth to those who were reading this. And I think that they can have depth to us as well. And so let's think of this tension. Let's keep this tension in the front of our minds that John was arrested. And let's continue. And we're going to try to put some things together. So John's arrested. He's gone from, uh, Jesus has gone from immersing thousands in the river Jordan to now longing to just wash the filth of a prison cell off of his own body. John has gone from seeing heaven rip open to seeing a jail cell door slammed in his face. John is the very one who saw the spirit of God descending into Jesus. And now John is strangely isolated from all his friends in ministry. John is the one who heard the voice of God declaring his pleasure in his son. And I can just kind of in my mind imagine the only voice he's hearing is the blasphemous words of these Roman soldiers who are guarding him. Man, why does God allow this to happen? What is this? There's tension here. Let's continue. So John's arrested. <laughs> Jesus came. Like, like, let's let that sink in. John was arrested. John was taken away. 
but now Jesus has come. When John was shut up, Jesus showed up, right? When John was locked up, Jesus was let loose, okay? When John was taken away, Jesus stepped in. Now, I don't know if it required John's being taken away in order for Jesus to begin his ministry or not. I don't know that. But what I do know and listen, and I think this is what these Christians in Rome were getting and I want us to get, is that the gospel is bigger than any one person, including John. Listen, including you, including me, it's bigger than us. It's bigger. It's so much bigger. And so there's more written by, by Jewish uh, historians about John the Baptist than about Jesus. John the Baptist was a huge figure in this day. And now he's locked up. But Jesus came. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news. There's this great quote, and, and I don't know who originally said it. So, I mean, Spurgeon said it some. The Wesley brothers said it some. But it goes like this. It says, God buries the workmen, but the work goes on. Think about that. The work is bigger than us. It's bigger than, if it's bigger than John the Baptist, it's bigger than me. God buries his messengers, but the mission of God continues. John is put into prison, and we know from Mark 6, if we read ahead, that his head is permanently severed from his shoulders at the request of a teenage girl. So is a teenage girl greater than God? Is a teenage girl greater than the mysterious plan of God to reconcile men to himself? Can a teenage girl thwart the plans of God? Can anything thwart the plans of God? Can cancer thwart the plans of God? Can infertility, you guys know our story, some of you do. Can miscarriages stop the plan of God? In your home right now, can a rebellious teenager stop the plans of God? Can an unfaithful spouse stop the plans of God? Can unemployment right now, where you're looking at perhaps losing your job, losing everything that you have, everything that you know, can that stop the eternal plans of God of drawing men to himself? No, we just read Romans 8. Listen, the plans of God are greater than we could ever imagine. They're greater than we could ever hope for. They're greater than we could have ever dreamt. There is nothing that can separate us from the desire of God for God to be glorified in this universe by his creation. Nothing is going to stop that. Nothing can stop God. And I'm hearing Mark scream, John is stopped, but the gospel is not. Jesus is now on the scene. John is gone, but Jesus is here. Now, we've all been in this spot in our life where things just start to kind of cram in. Things just kind of start to squeeze on us. And we get to that point of like, man, what's happening here, right? Like, what's going on here, God? Like, are you even there? You guys know some of you know our testimony. And there were countless nights where we would just cry ourselves to sleep where another month would pass and there would be no uh, uh, signs of having a, a babe or, or getting pregnant. And it's just like, God, why? Why is this happening? As it's pressing in, as it's squeezing in. It's like, is this bigger than God's ability to show off who his, he is and who his love is? I think about the people here in our church, just right here in the small group that have been so affected by cancer. I think of Piper. Both of her parents died. And it was an opportunity for Piper, because of cancer, and it was an opportunity for Piper to be crushed by this, this thing of doubt, this thing of, of pressure, this thing of cancer. But the reality is that the plan of God was greater. I mean, I have such, 
uh, high value of Piper in my mind because of what Piper now stands strong in the reality of who God is. Well, God's not done working on Piper just like he's not done working on me. But even cancer cannot stop the plans of God. I think of our very own uh, Kathy Hughes, who this last Thursday had a double mastectomy. But the courage and the faith that God is giving her to see the bigger picture in all of this, man, she would never have seen that apart from the struggle that she was going through. And I've mentioned already, I'll mention again, our struggle through three years of miscarriages, of infertility. And I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, we would not be here in Crozet, Virginia, watching God draw to himself his people if we had not gone through that. Nothing can stop the plans of God. Nothing. And I think the Christians in Rome, they're huddled together. They're reading this account. They've got the candlelight going. They're hiding from the government. They're in these underground tombs. I think they get this. I think they're seeing, man, they could rest assured that even if their own life was taken from them, the gospel would go on. The gospel would continue. The gospel would thrive. This is a reminder to us today, guys, that God is bigger than us. We are graciously invited to participate in God's plan, but we must remember that they're his plans. It's his gospel. So even with John off the scene, the story is not over. It's just getting started. Even if every believer in the room here today was wiped off the face of this planet, now listen, it's not going to stop the gospel. It's not going to stop God's plans to draw men to himself. And we have the joy of being a part of that, of seeing that. This is the beauty of the gospel. That it's not dependent on us, but it's dependent on God. And this is so cool. He says he's proclaiming the gospel of God. Whose gospel is this? Is this our gospel? Is this the world's gospel? In a sense it is, but who is it that owns this gospel? And it's God. God. Mark makes this crystal clear that this is God's gospel. Jesus is declaring God's good news. It's God's good news first and foremost. It's only ours by his grace and love that he extends when he extends it to us. But it starts with God and his giving us his righteousness through Jesus. Without God graciously saving us, then we would not have life in Christ. So from this, we can rest assured that God's in control. I didn't want to just zoom past that, and I, I think that this would, would, would flash out from the pages of Mark's testimony like neon lights that, man, even if we as Christians get arrested, man, the gospel continues. John's going to lose his head, but the gospel goes on. So what we're going to focus in the rest of our time real quickly is this verse 15. And this is what Jesus is proclaiming. This is so cool. That the, these are the very first recorded words of Jesus in the book of Mark. Everything else up until here has been kind of narration. And right now we actually get into a monologue, the first sentence that Jesus makes in John. And this is, this is I mean, in Mark. This is, this is crazy. This is verse 15. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And there's so much in here. We, we need to come to community group this week to kind of massage some of this stuff out. But this is what Jesus is saying, and the time is fulfilled. He's saying the time is now. Everything that has been prophesied about me since all the way back to Genesis 3 that Richard talked about last week, 
everything, ever since human, human history, all the way through the prophets, all the way through the Old Testament messengers, all the way through the Old Testament law, all of it, everything talking about the coming Messiah, everything talking about the coming of the kingdom of God, all of that, you're looking at it. That's what he's saying. The time has been fulfilled. Like, it's right here. And, and Mark even uses a very technical term, a word for time. He's not saying, like, a day in history. But he's saying this is a very historic day. Not just a historical day, like it's just another day that's passing. But this is a very historic day. This is the way I kind of think about that. I've got a lot of historical days in my 32 years of life. I don't know how many days I should have factored that out, see how many days I've lived. I don't know, a lot. Uh, but very few of them are historic days. When I, at age 13, when God drew me to himself and I realized my sinfulness and my need for Jesus, and that was a historic day, right? I remember that day. The day before, the day after, I don't really remember those days. But it was a historic day. On uh, July 12, 2003, when April said yes to marrying me, and we at that altar we confessed our, our allegiance to each other and before God. Man, that was a historic day. I don't really remember what I did before the day after, but I remember that day, okay? Then when Gwen was born, you know, in February of 2011, that was a historic day. Five, five weeks ago, when we had our grand opening here, then that was a historic day. And what I hear Mark you know, emphasizing is that this isn't just some sort of day that has kind of come and it's a, it's a day that's happened, but that this is a historic day. Everything that was pointed from the eternity past is pointing to this right here. The Messiah has now come. This wasn't just a historical day. It was historic. And you know what? We identify it as that. Everything that was before Jesus' time on earth, we label as B.C., right? But when Jesus came in, things changed to the point where we have adjusted our calendars to reflect that. And so A.D. is Latin for something that means the year of our Lord, okay? And so right now it's 2012 in the year of our Lord, 2012 years since the time of Christ. And so this is a very historic day that Jesus has come. He's on the scene. He says the time is fulfilled. This is a huge claim of Jesus' authority in his own words. We just kind of fly by that. But he's saying everything that you know of from the Old Testament is pointing to me. And then he says that the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, this could be looked at in one of two ways. All right, I'm just going to you know, be honest with you. It looks, it's looked at as in two of, one of two ways. One way is like the kingdom of God is at hand, or as the NIV puts it, the kingdom of God is near. It's kind of the idea of like it's not yet, but, it, but it's coming. Okay? Just hold on. Keep your seat. It's coming. Um, but, but there's problems with that idea because you know, what would Jesus say hold on for? Like Jesus the Messiah is here. Why would we be waiting for anything else? The, other, the second idea is this. It's... Um, the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is near, as NIV puts it. But that is, man, you could reach out your hand and touch it. It's at hand. Thanks for being my... Yeah, no, the kingdom of God is near. Like, you can reach out and touch it. Think of it this way. If I were to call you up, all right, I call up uh, Will, and I say, hey, Will, um, I'm near your house, okay? So uh, Will could take that to one of two ways. Like, I've left my house, and I'm on my way, and I'm getting there soon. But Will could walk out his front door and see me standing to his house, next to his house and say, hey, I'm, yeah, I'm right here. I'm near your house. I'm standing right next to your house. And I think that second idea 
is the way in which Jesus is saying here. He's like, listen, guys, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. It's right now. I am representing everything that has ever been promised to God's nation, to God's people, to the nations throughout the world. I am here to take the sins of those who would believe away. The Yom Kippur that was predicted in the Old Testament where the bull was t- took the yearly sins of the people away. He's saying, I am here to take away the sins of God's people. I'm here. It's now. Let's get this going. Let's get this on. And so as Jesus is declaring his, 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 the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and he's saying the time, this historic time is now, I'm here on the scene. And he's saying, I, I'm not just, it's not something yet coming, but it's right now. Touch me. I am. Remember, think about uh, um, Matthew, uh, where Jesus says, you know, someone goes out to a field and he stumbles across a, a treasure. And he buries the treasure back. He goes and sells everything that he has. And he goes and buys that field. He says, that's what the kingdom of God is. It's something that's so precious, so priceless, that anyone, when you see it, anyone, that when you, you, you understand what it is, it becomes instantly more valuable than anything else. And let me just tell you, man, that's Jesus. Jesus is more valuable than anything else. Jesus is more precious. Jesus is more priceless. Jesus is greater than anything else. And so he's saying, man, it's here. And these, these claims, man, these claims demand a response from those who are around Jesus. And this is the response. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. So he's saying, the time is now. I'm here. I'm on the scene. Repent and believe in the gospel. I don't know of any words in Christianity that have been more redefined and twisted than these two words, repent and believe. Twisted and redefined into something that they were not intended by God, by the Holy Spirit as he wrote this, by Mark who penned it, to mean. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because repent and believe, that is the central message of the gospel. That is our central response in the gospel. And so it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it shouldn't alarm us if the devil has tried his hardest to redefine. Use the same term, okay, same vocabulary, but let's bring another dictionary in and let's use a different definition of these terms. It, it, it shouldn't surprise us. In fact, so this is what I'm going to do very quickly as we wrap up. I'm going to try to say this is what these terms are not and this is what they are. Just very quickly. Obviously, we're not going to exhaust the whole deal in five minutes. But this is what these terms are not, and this is what biblically they seem to talk about. Again, come to community group this week where we can kind of massage this out a little bit further. So what? let's start with repent, and then we'll go into belief. What is repent not? What does it not mean? Uh, this last weekend, uh, Jeff and I and Richard, we went down to North Carolina for a conference, and I was looking through and started, you know, putting thoughts together through this message. And I know that Jeff came from a, a Catholic, Roman Catholic background as a child. And so I just wanted to kind of interview him. Like, what, what was that like? When you hear the word term as a youngster, when you were, you know, involved in the Catholic Church, what was that like? What was the first thing that came to your mind? And what he basically described is that repentance to him as a child, not anymore, okay, but as a child, repentance was repayment for sin. He said this is how it would work. He would go to Father Joe and he would say, Father Joe, I have sinned. And he would list out all of his sins to Father Joe. And Father Joe would say, well, uh, Jeff, in order to uh, be forgiven of these sins, these are, this is what you've got to go do. Go say 15 Hail Marys, say five Our Fathers, and God will be delighted in your 
payment for these sins, and these sins will be removed. So this idea has become, this definition of repentance has become repayment. Listen to me, church. Repentance is not repayment. If you ever want to say hallelujah, amen, you can say it right now. Repentance is not repayment. Listen to what Jesus says, or what, what Paul says in Ephesians. If you've been with us long enough, you know, man, I'm starting to get chill bumps. This is crazy. If you've been with us long enough, you know that we went through the book of Ephesians before we started the book of Mark. That wasn't by mistake. God had a plan and all that. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says that in him, talking about Christ, we have redemption. That's payment. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And that's the payment. Repentance is not repayment. So what is repentance? If, re- if my sin have been paid for by Christ, then what is repayment? What, what is repentance? Before I say what it is, I don't think we have to have a Catholic background. I don't have a Catholic background. But I've got, I grew up with this kind of messed up idea of what repentance was. Anything where we think that God loves us more when we do right and God loves us less when we mess up and we have to do something in order to get God's love and affection towards us, anything that you want to call that, that is an idea of repayment for our sin. Listen, either Jesus paid for it all on the cross or he didn't. And we've got to figure out how to pay it. Listen, if we've got to figure out how to pay it, then we are we're in a heap of trouble, okay? We're in a heap of trouble. So repentance is not repayment. So what is repentance? Here we go. In Ephesians as well, Paul talks about how repentance is the God-enabled turning of our dead hearts towards him. Repentance is the changing of one's mind. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that we were in hate and now we are in love. We were in darkness, but now we are in light. We were fools, but now we are wise. Repentance is the work of God's Spirit in us as He turned us to God in our new birth, and He continues to turn us towards God and to make, as He makes us, as He renews our minds and makes us into Christ's own likeness. Repentance requires omnipotence. Uh-oh, big word. Omnipotence. This means being all-powerful. It's one of the attributes of God, therefore the attributes of the Holy Spirit, therefore the attribute of Christ. Repentance requires omnipotence. And so if you are omnipotent, if you're able to take your dead heart and turn your dead heart towards God, then okay, I guess you can figure it out for yourself. But the reality is we are dead in our sins, dead in our transgressions, and it takes the omnipotent power of God himself to turn us to him. So repentance is not repayment. Repentance is God-enabled turning from ourself to God. Repentance is a work of grace. Repentance is, in fact, when discussing this issue of can the Gentiles be saved, back at the early part of the church in Acts chapter uh, 11, I think it is, yeah, 11 verse 18. See, the gospel hadn't yet gone out to the Gentiles. It only had been with the Jews. And so they thought that the gospel could only be with the Jews. But then the word came back that the Gentiles were getting saved. The Gentiles were, 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 were turning to God. And they scratched their heads like, can this happen? I thought it was only for us. And so they heard the testimonies. And this is what the pastors of the Jewish church, this brand new church, when they heard these things, they fell silent. 
And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Repentance itself at its core is a gift from God. So repentance is not your best trying to please God with your life. Repentance is the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in turning you from you to God's glorious and gracious self. It's not repayment. It is a work of God. So what is belief? So he says, repent and believe in the gospel. And this too has been kind of messed up by our society, by, by church even. And it's become this, this idea of intellectual acknowledgement. Like, I believe that God is, exists. I believe that he's real. But is that what Jesus is talking about? Is that what God is, is, Jesus is calling people to do, to just believe that God is real? Uh, check this out. We're going to go through the book of Mark at a slow pace, obviously. We just do two verses today. And we're going to see several examples. I can't wait till we get there. Where Jesus asks people who he is. And there's reports about who people are saying Jesus is. Most of the reports, most of the, the testimonies, people get it wrong. Okay? If you remember in Mark chapter 8, there's the, the, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? They say, well, you're John the Baptist. Come back to life. Remember the head that rolled off? It's got, it's got put back on, and that's you. You're John the Baptist. Come back to life. Some people say, well, you're just another Old Testament prophet who's come to, like, you know, mess things up or whatever. Some people say, well, you're, you're Elijah reincarnate. That's who you are. People, most of the time, got it wrong as to whether or not. And, and in fact, when, Mar, uh, when Peter says, you are the Christ, son of the living God, remember this, okay? Jesus says, glory be to God because God revealed this to you. Even our understanding of that Jesus being who he is is God's gracious gift to us. Man, God be praised. But here's the kicker. Every, I can't say every, I'll just say most every, most every time when Jesus casts out a demon from somebody, the demons declare you, Jesus, are the son of God. Man, the demons got it right, whereas people most of the time got it wrong. So does that mean that demons are born-again believers because they have an intellectual acknowledgement of Jesus as the son of God? Of course not. So what is Jesus talking, so belief is not just some sort of intellectual acknowledgement of Jesus being God or that God being real. That's not what Jesus is calling people to. He's calling to them to believe in the gospel. So very quickly, what does believing the gospel, what does this belief in the gospel mean? So he says, repent, turn, the Holy Spirit working in you to turn you from yourself to me and believe in the gospel. He's calling them to turn from their system of belief that they've held, their worldview that they've had established for years, and to turn to the reality of the gospel. He's calling them not just to believe in the existence of God, but in the power of the gospel. So what's the gospel? That's a good church word, right? What's the gospel? Well, it means good news, good message. But in a very short couple statements, the gospel is this. God was complete in himself, yet he created a universe to display his glory into it, to show off how powerful, how amazing he is. And we, as his creation, we messed it all up by sinning. Each one of us participating in one way or another in this rebellion, which is evidenced by our natural sinful nature from birth. And I don't have to tell my daughter how to do wrong. <laughs> She's got that figured out. It's built in. Like, I, I gave it to her as I passed it on to her, as I was given that from my father. And God graciously, despite our sin, 
He graciously chose to show how deep and how amazing his love and his affections really is, really are, by purchasing back from spiritual death those who believe. God graciously placed our sin on his precious, perfect son, Jesus. And Jesus was slain by God to take away our sin. Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he is, in fact, God. And now God continues to spread his fame across the globe by drawing men, women, boys and girls to himself, by opening their blind eyes, by breathing, breathing life into their spiritually dead hearts, by calling out from the world a people, like Richard was talking about before, an ecclesia, a people for himself. Man, this is the gospel. This is the good news that God saves sinners, that God graciously rescues people from the consequences of our own sin just to show off himself, to show off how rich he is in his mercy, how rich he is in his grace, how rich he is in who he is. The gospel is his good news that he graciously gives to us. Apart from God graciously making us alive, we would still be dead. God saves sinners. That's the gospel. And what Jesus is calling us to is to believe this. He's calling us to believe in this gospel, not just that God is real, but that Jesus is God's son and that our sin deserves death that we brought on ourselves. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has settled the holy and righteous requirement of God. In fact, in a couple of minutes, we're going to have what we call the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's table or communion it's called as well and this happened at the very right before jesus was arrested the, that very night jesus had a meal with his disciples and he takes a piece of bread and he breaks it and he says see how this bread is broken my body is going to be broken for the sins of you take it eat it don't forget what i've done for you and then he takes this cup of wine and he passes it around. He says, see this cup? This is a new covenant. The old covenant is passing off, and this is a new covenant, that I have taken the sins of people away forever. And this new covenant, this new cup represents my blood. Remember, when you drink this, remember my blood that was shed on your behalf. Remember that your sin was placed on me. My body was broken my blood was poured out, and through my death, you can have life. And that's the gospel, that Jesus has settled it all. And so in a couple of moments, we're going to make the opportunity available for any and all who believe to come and to take in the Lord's Supper. And while on the cross, Jesus declared, it is what? Finished. It's accomplished. It's done. That means that everything Jesus came to do was accomplished. The sins of those whom God would draw to himself were removed. They were paid for. They were gone. And so as we remember this, as we take the Lord's Supper, let's remember this. Let's keep in mind what Paul told the Corinthians. He says, if you're going to take in the Lord's Supper, make sure that you are in fact a believer whose, whose sin has been removed. 
Don't do this just to do it. Don't do it just because just everyone else is. Only do this if God has graciously forgiven all your sin in the completed work of Christ on the cross and that you have now been made alive by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. This new life in Christ is demonstrated to the world by our new heart, our new spirit, our daily renewal of our mind. Before we pull this train to a stop and we celebrate and worship, I just want to say one more thing about this belief. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and this is not of us. It is the work of God. Listen, we don't have anything to hang our hats on to say that we are worth saving, that we are worth God doing what he did. It is all, even the faith that we have to believe God, even that is a gift from God. Man, as David Platt said last weekend, it's like God's got it rigged. That he gives us even the faith to believe. What an amazing God we serve. And so God is so kind that he even gives us this faith to believe. It's not of us. It's not our works. It is the grace of God alone. And so we, we want to park here. And there's, we end every week with this journey marker. This is what we want to walk away with. And maybe write down, jot down, think on through the rest of the week. And here's, here's how I've tried to summarize this all thing. Nothing is bigger than the plan of God to call people to repent and believe. Nothing's bigger than that. Remember John's being put in prison and his head being cut off? Like, that's not bigger than the plan of God. God buries his saints and his work continues. Nothing is bigger. So whatever you're facing, whatever you're walking through, whatever you're touching right now, whatever, whatever that squeeze is right now, or that rebellious child, that, that wayward spouse, that, that, that rebellious uh, attitude, maybe even of your own heart, man, nothing is bigger than the grace of God and the plan of God to call people to repent and believe. So this is how we're going to leave this thing parked. Our band is going to come in a second, and they're going to start playing softly. I'm going to pray over us, and we're going to continue worshiping. We do this song at the end, not just to kind of like stretch our legs and kind of do, you know, whatever, but it is an opportunity of us to respond to what God is teaching in his word in worship. We're going to worship Jesus as we celebrate the sacrifice for us through taking of the Lord's Supper. This, if this is your first time doing this, this is how you're invited to come and do this. You're invited to come and take a piece of bread, to take a cup, and go and find a place with your wife, with your family, individually, together, however that works for you. To find a place in the worship area where you can spend some time thanking and praising God for what he has done for you, for calling you into his family, for looking on you with favor and punishing Jesus in your place. When you're done doing that, where the band will just be playing, when you're done doing that, just come back to your seats from wherever you are. You can be in your seats. I mean, you don't have to not be in your seats you know, when you do this. But come back to your seats. If you can find a corner, you can do it in your seats, wherever you want. We just want to spend some time. We just want to create some space for us just to be thankful. Once it looks like most everyone's done, the band's going to lead us in worship through music, declaring this old hymn, nothing but the blood of
of Jesus. And what can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So as we seek to spend this time in genuine worship together in response to God's grace, in response to His mercy towards us, man, I want us to take the time to pray freely, to sing freely, to freely come and pray with Richard or myself. We'll be up here in the front if you have any questions about your faith, any questions about Jesus or whatever. If God is calling you and drawing you to believe in this gospel that He saves sinners, that He can save you, that no matter what you have done, His grace is deeper, that no matter where you've messed up, and the arm of God is not shorter than the sin that you have committed. And it was nailed to Jesus, all to Him, I owe. If you want to talk about that, man, we'll be up here. We want to talk about this with you. But this is our time to respond, our time to worship, our time to see that nothing is bigger than the plan of God to call people. Whatever you've gone through or going through, man, God is bigger. We could be wiped off, but His gospel is going to continue. That we're not the center of God's existence. He is. And let's rejoice in that. Once we're done, then we'll, we'll be dismissed to go get our kids. We'll be dismissed to go get some more coffee and to tear down and head home. We'll have plenty of time for that. But this is our time to respond in worship to what Jesus has graciously done for us. So I'm going to pray. Music's just going to play. And the opportunity to come, take a piece of bread. We've got larger cups. If we want, if, you know, as a family, you want to take a larger cup, you can do that if you want. We've got smaller cups. It doesn't matter. Just, just want to make it available to all. Find a corner. You come back to your seat. Just spend time praying individually, as a, as a couple, as a family, however that looks. Just take the time. And then eat the bread and drink the juice. And let's worship. Father God, we thank you for what you are doing. For God, we thank you that this isn't the beginning right here, right now. God, you, from eternity past, you knew the plans that you would have to punish sin through Jesus, to draw men and women to yourself. God, we seek to place you where you belong as the Lord over all, sovereign in all that you do. God, I thank you for this text this morning that even in John's arrest, Jesus continued. And God, your gospel is bigger than us. God, we can faithfully and joyfully proclaim the goodness of Jesus. Because Jesus saved. Jesus saves. So God, as we come up and we take the Lord's Supper and take it and we pray, God, just drill into us, Father, Your grace and Your mercy. That while we were dead, You made us alive. While we were far off, You drew us near. That You called us out of our rebellion and our sin. And You have drawn us and You have adopted us into Your family. God, may our hearts just ring with worship this morning. Do a work, Father. May this gospel continue to change us. May we not reduce the gospel down to a, a diving board mentality that we've talked about so much. It's, a, it's not just something we throw onto the end of the service, but it's the gospel that continues to change us and to shape us and to make us into whom you desire 
for us to be. Christ living in us, working out from the inside. Draw us, Father, into relationship with You, into obedience with You, for Your glory. God, we thank You. If there's anyone here, Father, who wants to talk about the relationship with You, about this whole repent and believe thing, God, may this morning, may they come and talk with me and Richard. May they do business with You. But God, we pray that You would draw men to Yourself. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.